Almighty, gracious, heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here tonight. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to open your word and to meet you. Jesus, we pray that as we hear your words tonight, they would penetrate our stony hearts. They would soften our stiff necks and they would cause us to be shaped more and more into the men and women that you have created us to be. Holy Spirit, have your way among us. We invite you to move in us and through us. We invite you to make us to be the men and women of God you have created us to be. Do so by removing from us those things that would distract us from your word. Forgive us for our sins uh, and give us that sense of, of fellowship with you so that we will have your word in us that we might not sin. Glorify your name as we come to you. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. And then he gives a few examples of how they will do that. One of the examples of how they will do that is it'll say, They require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Paul also writes, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? And lastly, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Now on first glance, looking at these three verses, I think many times a case has been made that fasting is unchristian. It is sub-Christian. It is Uh, an argument that would say that any reason that we might have to fast would be nullified. But you know what I have found? Our ideas have a funny way of running smack into reality. And in this case, specifically, Matthew 9, verse 15, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Whatever you make of the other three verses, and I think we'll have an answer for those, whatever you make of that, we have to come to Matthew chapter 9 and come deal with Jesus' most succinct and most important teaching on the subject of Christian fasting. Indeed, we ask the question, is there room in the Christian life for fasting? And if there is room in the Christian life for fasting, what expectations does the New Testament have for us in this regard? Why on earth should we fast? And what should we expect as Christians when we fast? Some of these are the questions we're going to address tonight. And I pray that as we walk away from tonight, I pray that we will have a renewed commitment to afflict ourselves 
with joy. Our passage tonight will help us to understand, as I said, the central teaching in the New Testament on the subject of fasting. Let me read it for us. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved." Now, a couple of months ago, I alluded to this particular passage when I was teaching through Matthew 6. You'll remember verse 1. Beware, the practicing, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, our acts of righteousness are those things that we do to be noticed by God. If we do them to be noticed by people, then we will be noticed by people and not God, therefore having our reward for our acts. Then Jesus gives us a few examples of what these are, and he goes on to give us very specific advice on how to avoid the trap of pleasing people so that we can, in fact, please God. Matthew 6, starting in verse 16. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, amen, amen, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, I threw out an idea a second ago that I bet more than one of you stumbled on. This idea of doing acts of righteousness to be noticed by God or seeking to be rewarded by God. Now, I know we're all good Baptists here, but these are not bad words. I did not swear or say something indecent by saying those. You will not lose your Baptist card or your Christian card by saying that you seek to be rewarded by the Father. Indeed, from the beginning to the end, the Bible is filled with promises of rewards for those who seek God. I need an amen. amen. Right? Come on. Now, we are not in any way, shape, or or form talking about earning our salvation. That would cause you to lose your Christian card. We are talking about pleasing the one whom we ought genuinely to be concerned to please. Now furthermore, thank you, furthermore, we ought to desire to please 
The person that we ought to desire to please is the one who promises us rewards that we can't even begin to imagine. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Delight. Find your greatest joy and delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Tonight, by God's grace, I want to convince us to afflict ourselves with joy. Now, what do I mean by this sentence, afflict yourselves with joy? Go about arranging your life in such a way that you pursue the surest, most direct path to the greatest joy possible. This way of life will include saying no to things that stand in your path but are not necessarily bad things in and of themselves. Afflicting yourself like this will enable you to experience the painful desperation for the only one, the only source of healing for that desperation and cause you to draw near to the one who can give you the joy that you sought in your food and entertainment. This is what it means to afflict yourselves with joy. So let's start on our passage in verse 14. We read, Then the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Last week, we talked about how some Pharisees came and talked to Jesus' disciples. Hey, why does your master eat with sinners? And the whole point of the question we saw was that they were trying to discourage the followers of Jesus from doing that which their master did. Now, in this case, I think we have some genuine people who really want to know. Jesus... Explain to us why you don't fast. So Jesus answers, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Now we need to understand something. The primary purpose of fasting in the Old Testament and indeed most cultures for most time was mourning. Usually in the Old Testament, it was mourning sin because the only prescribed fast in the Mosaic law was that of the Day of Atonement. This was the day that Israel took once a year to consider their sin so that they may turn back to following Yahweh. Now, obviously, there are many places in the Old Testament where fasts were proclaimed. And usually it was because of some imminent attack or some calamity that Israel petitioned God to avert. And we find in the Old Testament, individuals would fast because of grief or because of guilt or sometimes simply so that they would draw attention to the Lord whose demands on them required self-denial. Now, no one needed to explain all this 2,000 years ago. 
The worshiper fasted just because it was a part of what worshipers do. In fact, until self-worship was codified in the West in the early 1800s, fasting was a common practice for everybody in the world and even in the West. But Jesus is responding to an honest question. Why aren't you and your disciples fasting right now? And Jesus responds to that by declaring that in the moment in which they asked, mourning and grief was not appropriate. Wait, wait, wait. Look, I'm here, guys. You should be celebrating. This is a wedding. Celebrate. Don't fast right now because the party's just getting started. Again, this is just how life works. Even today in our culture, my goodness, we spend 10 times the amount of money on the wedding as we do on the marriage. And we have obvious results for that. Those in Jesus' day did the same thing. And they may have partied themselves into fasting for a week or two because they blew everything on the party. But that's what you do. When you're celebrating, you want to eat and you want to drink. It's, it's part of how God made us. Indeed, where are we going to be when Jesus calls us to him? We're going to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Amen. I can't wait. There's not going to be any mayonnaise and no shrimp. In this case, Jesus, the bridegroom, is here. Therefore, there is no fasting. But what does it mean when it says, when the bridegroom is taken from them? It simply means right now. In between the time of his ascension, when Jesus ascended to the Father, and the time when he shall return to bring his own with him, that amount of time, the bridegroom is not with us. I think this verse gives Christians a reason to think that fasting is a normal part of the Christian experience right now. It may be that this reason is magnified by the fact that everything in us rises up against this idea of denying ourselves the pleasure of eating. I'm not going to ask anybody to raise your hand, but I wonder how many of us already in just these last five minutes have thought to themselves, I'm not going to fast. That's silly. Hmm. When we have that kind of visceral reaction, I really genuinely think that it might cause us to think about what's making that visceral reaction. I'm not saying that just because you have this kind of reaction, you have to obey that. That would be foolishness. But it is something to consider. And in this case, afflict. Cause yourself some discomfort so that you can have joy. 
Humble yourself so that God may rejoice to lift you up. Okay, so that's the preliminaries. That, that's the, the foundation of what is going to be said tonight. But Jesus is going to go through and he's going to take this picture and he's going to fill in the lines. And he does so starting in verse 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Now here Jesus, as he very often does, appeals to common sense. He appeals to what everybody knows. A 10-year-old would know, have an idea of what he's talking about. You don't take fabric that has never been washed and thus shrunk and use it to patch something that has shrunk. Because what happens? It gets wet, it starts to shrink, and it's going to, guess what? Tear a bigger hole in whatever garment it was that you had. Okay, so the metaphor is clear enough, but what does he mean by it? Well, that's a fair question. I'm, I'm water skiing. I'm, in fact, I'm parasailing over a lot of details. If you're interested, we could talk about it. But that which is new in the new covenant cannot be used to make what is in the old covenant acceptable. Now let me put it in a way that we at Grace very often say this. Don't try to add law to grace. Don't try to add my obedience to what God has already done for me. This is true also in Jesus' next metaphor, verse 17. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins so that both are preserved. Now, isn't this a disgusting picture? That's a goat that has been skinned without cutting a hole through it, turned inside out and turned into a wine bottle. Okay, you can get rid of the picture. That's pretty gross. <laughs> that is what Jesus was talking about. And that, every 10-year-old knew what it was because they had one hanging out the back door. You know, did they filter it after it came out of the wines? I, there's so many questions I have. That, that makes me not want to drink wine right now. Again, what Jesus is pointing at here in verse 17 is that these skins have already been stretched out by the process of fermenting this wine. And if you put more wine into it, it's going to cause them to stretch more. And by this time, they're brittle. They, they're just going to blow up. And then you're going to lose all that wine. You're going to lose the skins. You're going to lose everything. This much is clear. Again, we understand, we, we get the picture of what Jesus is saying, but how do we figure out what it means? Leon Morris puts it this way. Jesus was not simply bringing in a revised and updated Judaism or even founding a new sect within Judaism. What he was teaching and doing were such that they could not be contained within the accepted Jewish system. 
To attempt to confine his followers within the limits of the old religion would be to invite disaster. This did not mean he was rejecting the Old Testament. Let me reread that in case you missed it. This did not mean that Jesus was rejecting the Old Testament. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, not to reject him. What he repudiated was not scripture, but the current religious practices allegedly based on scripture. So what Jesus is saying in these two metaphors is not that we throw out the Old Testament. It's that we don't use those regulations and especially a degenerated understanding of them to shape our new lifestyle. What I am talking about tonight with regards to fasting is not turning fasting or actually using fasting as it is all too often used anyways into a method for impressing God with our righteousness. Look, Jesus, how much I'm fasting for you. In fact, that phrase I used a few minutes ago, using our acts of righteousness to be noticed by God is in fact a slight misnomer. Hopefully some of you are breathing a little bit easier now. Okay, Greg's not a heretic. Instead, we use our acts of righteousness to draw our attention to the fact that God does notice us 24-7. Not only does God notice us, but he blesses us beyond anything we can deserve. He blesses us beyond any great tri-tip meal. Even he blesses us better than if we fasted ourselves to death. Remember today that Pastor Benji spoke to us very clearly. Your God is not disappointed in you. You are not, in fact, going to impress him any more than he is already impressed by your son. Don't imagine anything I'm saying today by saying that fasting is a way for you to improve your standing with the Lord. That would be legalistic and that would be anathema to what Jesus and Paul says. But now don't miss this. You have, this is the message right here. Fasting, in the sense that I'm talking about it, is a means of grace. Fasting is a tool that God puts in our hand by the one who longs to pour out blessing on you, who desires so much to pour out his goodness on you. Fasting is a tool that he puts in our hands so that we can have more and more blessings. He enables us through fasting to access himself and his grace, which is far better than anything and everything we can chase by avoiding fasting. By filling ourselves up with as much fried chicken and mashed potatoes as we can get. Dallas Willard says about fasting and prayer and silence and, and these other disciplines that these are exercises. They are training sessions to enable us to do that which we could not do on our own. Namely, me focus my attention on God. 
not try to earn something from God and drawing his attention to me. If that's how you're using fasting, stop. Go out tonight and get yourself some, that yogurt, what's that yogurt place down the street? Yeah, yeah yogurt creations, there it is. I always want to say TCBY because that's what it was when I was in high school. Anybody remember TCBY? Okay, good, all right. Fasting is a tool. It is a means of grace. Fasting is like playing the scales. No one practices scales on a guitar or a piano so that they can master scales. They play the scales so that they can master the instrument. So that they can play beautiful music with ease. We fast not so that we can get good at fasting. We fast so that we can have our attention centered on God instead of anything or everything we might chase down here. We ought never to have the idea that fasting is in and of itself something for us to master. John Piper explains for us in short what this paragraph, Matthew 9, 14 to 17, is saying. He says this, We have tasted the powers of the age to come, and our fasting is not because we are hungry for something we have not experienced, namely the presence of God, the power of the Holy Spirit in us, the beauty of Christ but because the new wine of Christ's presence is so real and so satisfying, we must have all that it is possible to have of this new wine, this blessing that the Lord Jesus longs to pour out on anybody who asks for it. The newness of our fasting as opposed to the way the Pharisees were fasting is this. Its intensity comes not because we have never tasted the wine of Christ's presence, but because we have tasted it so wonderfully by his spirit and cannot now be satisfied until the consummation of this joy is complete, namely the wedding supper of the Lamb. The new fasting, the Christian fasting is a hunger for all the fullness of God aroused by the aroma of Jesus' love and by the taste of God's goodness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to afflict yourselves with joy. Another way of saying our big idea today is to paraphrase what Piper says in his book. Choose the path of pleasant pain. Does fasting hurt? It really does, especially the first day. After that, the pain lessens for a while. Is, is fasting an affliction? Well, absolutely it is. In fact, that's a common euphemism the Old Testament uses to fast. Afflict yourselves. He's not telling you to beat yourself. He's telling you to stop eating for a day or so. Is fasting a difficult thing to do? You bet. Is it something that will draw us as sure as a compass to north to the path of joy? We are creatures of 21st century America. 
and everything around us is bombarding us from every conceivable angle. And we just, in our worldly mind, can't see the point of pain. Pain is what we spend billions of dollars to avoid. And yet, the reality remains. Life is pain, your highness. Anyone who says differently is selling you something. That statement by the dread pirate Roberts is correct. If the dread pirate Roberts is correct, then one of the secrets to life is to choose the pain that will bring the greatest joy, the most joy, the fullest joy, the joy that continues long after the tryptophan is gone from your system on Thanksgiving Day. Fasting is one of the time-tested and God-approved methods for walking the path of pleasant pain. If I can give one quote that sums up this sermon, John Piper says, Fasting gives glory to God when it is experienced as a gift from God aimed at knowing and enjoying more of God. As you have heard me say many, many, many times, to know God better is to love him and to trust him more. Fasting is a means for doing that. God is glorified in us when we aim our behavior at being most satisfied in him. Do you want to be satisfied to the greatest degree? Do you want to have the best life possible? Find your joy in God. How? How do I find my joy in God? By doing your absolute best to shut out every voice other than God that is always clamoring for your attention. Now, I first found John Piper back in 1997 when I was looking for a book on fasting. I wanted to read something, and as far as I was concerned, John Piper was just some guy who wrote a book. I had no idea who he was. I found the book, A Hunger for God. I'm sure it was on the CDB, CBD catalog or something like that. And so I bought it. And of course, I also read about that time, uh, Dallas Willard's Celebration of Discipline. If you're interested, those are, I meant to bring them so you could see what they look like. Those are the two best books talking about fasting. There are several others if you want to talk about more. And so, I fasted. This was a regular practice of mine for quite some time. And I learned three things. I learned primarily, the biggest lessons were three. Voices are always screaming at me in my mind. You know what I'm talking about. Your flesh is constantly screaming at you. And very often, for me anyways, my flesh is asking for something to eat to cover up another screaming voice about something that I did wrong, some, something I'm coveting, some relationship I haven't pursued healing in, some work that I should have done that I've been avoiding. And so I medicate myself by eating. Now, by the way, for many of us, that self-medicating isn't eating. In fact, we have a whole industry aimed at helping people who avoid eating 
which is another voice screaming inside their head. For some, this self-medication might be alcohol. For some, it might be the meaningless chatter of the radio or a neighbor or surfing the internet for the next biggest joy. Fasting makes these noises very apparent. It just makes clear what you ought to have seen in the first place. And when it is apparent to you, you will have to deal with it. Will you turn back to the mire? Or will you turn to the Father who is the only one who can heal you? The second thing that fasting taught me taught me, is I am not very often, or as much as I flatter myself to think, I am not often listening to the softly spoken voice of God. A friend of mine asked me one time, do you hear God speaking to you when I'm listening? If you want to talk more about God speaking to us. I'm not talking about some weird experience. I'd be happy to talk to you about that. Maybe it'll come up. But this brings up a question. Why does God hide himself so well? Why, why isn't God better seen by the average person? C.S. Lewis believes it's because if, he, if God allowed one more degree of his glory to shine, we'd be bullied into acknowledging him and his experiment that he described in Job would be worthless. But fasting is that lifting of the curtain that's hiding God so just a fraction of an inch so we can see just a little bit more of who he is. And therefore love him and trust him more. The third thing that fasting has taught me is that I am all too often ignoring the promises of God for me in Christ. What riches of grace are you forfeiting because you are clinging to worthless idols? Fasting is only one means among many. Fasting is also very dangerous. Like fire. Fire is absolutely wonderful and absolutely needful, but it can destroy you. Fasting in this sense is the same. It can be easily misused, allowing us to become prideful in our self-mastery. Look at me, I can fast. And fasting is by no means a sure thing that can be used to twist God's arm into him giving you something. Again, if that's how you're seeing fasting, take me to me and Ed's pizza. We'll go together. I'll help you stop fasting. Thank, I needed somebody to laugh. Thank you. Piper said once again, is fasting Christian? It is if... It comes from confidence in Christ and is sustained by the power of Christ and aims at the glory of Christ. Fasting, as I said, is a means of grace. It is a tool for allowing us to experience God's grace. If we allow it to become something else, we must turn away from it. Which is why, as a matter of fact, I did stop fasting on a regular basis. One last word. 
One more corrective to a potential problem. Fasting involves primarily food. But fasting does not necessarily demand total abstinence. You can fast for periods of a day, for example, so that you can draw your attention more to the Lord. You can fast for short periods of time and then regain, re, renew your eating. And furthermore, fasting must never be done in such a way that it puts us in danger. There are many, I imagine, here in this room who ought not to fast because of some medical condition. That is, the Lord is not asking you to fast if it's going to cause some significant problem. Which brings us to the idea, to the understanding that anything and everything that is or could be a substitute for God can be fasted from. Maybe fasting from food is not what you need to be doing right now. Fast from television, fast from Facebook, fast from internet surfing, fast from all kinds of things, games that you play, places you go, money that you spend. There are plenty of ways for us to fast that don't have anything to do with eating. So again, I want to encourage us. I want us to encourage you to pray and ask your friend how it is you can be someone who is turning your attention to the Lord. Not winning approval from him, but finding a way to look to him so that you can experience him and therefore know him better and therefore love him and trust him more. Ask him how he can enable you to afflict yourself with joy. Lord Almighty, give us grace. This is a fine line we tried to walk tonight, and Lord, it may be that I walk too far on one side or the other, but I pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak to us clearly so that we can, by your grace, walk this line of fasting and become more and more the men and women of God you've created us to be. Bless us tonight so that we may be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.